Welcome to the very first edition of the California Slap Law Podcast. Save these electrons, they'll be worth something someday. Today we're going to talk about me. We'll also look at the history of California's anti-slap statute, and most importantly, explain why every California litigator must understand and stay current on California's slap law. Welcome to the California Slap Law Podcast. California's slap law was a great idea, but it can be a minefield for the uninformed. To guide you through that minefield, here's your host, One guy. from the law firm of Morrison Stone, Aaron Morris. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the California Slap Law Podcast. As set forth here and above, my name is Aaron Morris. I'm with the law firm of Morris & Stone, located in Orange County, California. We're actually located in beautiful downtown Tustin. So many attorneys in Orange County have this crazy notion that you have to practice in certain locations. At first, it was Newport Beach. A real OC attorney practiced in Newport Beach, and then it became... Uh, Irvine when Newport Beach fell out of fashion. So um, all the real attorneys were in Irvine. And I don't really think I ever had that conscious thought process, but it occurred to me one day we could locate our offices anywhere we please. So I'm now 10 minutes from my home and 10 minutes from the court. Biggest problem I face is if Stairway to Heaven comes on the radio on my way to work, I sometimes don't get to hear the ending. Anyway, Morrison Stone, uh, where our primary practice areas are First Amendment and defamation law, and slaps and anti-slap motions go hand-in-hand hand with our primary practice areas. I have a couple of websites devoted to the topic of slap law and anti-slap motions. First one is antislap.com, which is a informational site. That's basically a static site. But I also have californiaslaplaw.com, which is a blog where I write extensively about this area of the law. I also have a blog devoted to Internet defamation called internetdefamationblog.com, internetdefamationblog.com. That was pretty clever. If you publish a blog, you know they're black holes of content if you want to keep them fresh and, and current. So writing articles for those two blogs has really uh, kept me on the bleeding edge of recent developments in the areas of defamation and anti-slap. Because of those blogs, I get calls from the media when issues arise involving defamation. And my proudest moment came when Jesse James was talking trash about Sandra Bullock and Star Magazine called and interviewed me about that uh, dust-up. You know that had to be a proud moment because Star Magazine is such a prestigious journal. Anyway, I'm launching this podcast to serve two purposes. Um, I realize no one is going to be sitting on the edge of their seats waiting for the next edition of the California Slap Law podcast, but... If you are a litigator in California, you must have a thorough understanding of slap law and stay current, as evidenced by the parade of attorneys through my, through my office who have run afoul of California slap law. There's an awful lot of attorneys out there who don't have this area of law nailed down as well as they should. As you'll see in a few minutes, even if you never handle a defamation action, there's basically no action that won't have potential slap implications. That's the mistake I find that most attorneys make and uh, I run into some trouble because the the belief is the the misnomer is that the slap statute only applies to defamation actions so attorneys walk around thinking well as long as I don't bring a defamation action I should be fine but as you'll see in a moment just about any cause of action can have slap implications breach of contract actions 
uh, have been found to be slaps. Uh, breach of the implied covenant of good faith, those actions have been found to be slaps. Uh, breach of fiduciary duty, this is one I see all the time, and in this particular case I'm referring to, the attorney brought an action against a board member of a corporation saying that the board member had breached his fiduciary duty to the corporation. And that was a perfectly fine, perfectly uh, functional cause of action, would have done fine, but he felt compelled to throw into the complaint that one of the breaches was the officer had conspired to give false testimony at a deposition. Well, litigation privilege, that means you can't sue somebody for giving false testimony at a deposition, which made that a slap, which resulted in the cause of action being thrown out based on an anti-slap motion. Declaratory relief actions. Have you ever filed a declaratory relief action? Did you consider the slap implications when you did so? Employment discrimination claims have been found to be slaps. False advertising claims have been found to be slaps. Fraud. Interference with contract. I had a case where my client was partners with uh, somebody else, and the somebody else went to the bank and took out a fraudulent credit card, basically went to the bank and took out a credit card in the name of the corporation. This wasn't authorized, so my client went to the bank and said, uh, please cancel that credit card. He wasn't authorized to do that. So the bank communicated to the partner and said, we've been told to cancel this credit card. The partner was so up in arms that he sued uh, for interference with contracts, saying that he had a long-standing relationship with the bank and that my client had interfered with that. Um, we brought an anti-slap motion on the basis that uh, the relationship, or excuse me, the, the reporting the fraudulent credit card to the bank was protected speech, and the motion was granted. Would you have seen that coming? If not, then maybe you need to brush up on your slap law. Interference with prospective economic advantage has been found to be a slap. Interference with the right to practice medicine. This case went all the way to the Supremes. This was a case where the doctor lost his privileges to practice at a particular hospital, so his attorney brought an action against the hospital trying to get his privileges back. The hospital brought an anti-slap motion, which was granted because it was found that the peer review process was deemed to be an official proceeding authorized by law. I bet the attorney never saw that one coming. Do you do real estate law? Quiet title actions are subject to the anti-slap statute. Retaliatory eviction cases are subject to the anti-slap statute. As you can see, if you're a litigator, it is very likely that your cases will have slap ramifications. And don't get complacent just because your practice areas didn't fall into one of the causes of action I just listed. Oh, I hear some of you out there, your, your, your wheels are spinning and you're saying, oh, I didn't hear him list personal injury, so I must be okay, or I do family law, so I must be okay. As an example, I just had a family law attorney call me for advice. The family law case had spun off a civil action, and she continued to represent her client and ended up getting hit with an anti-slap motion for one of the causes of action she'd put in the cross-complaint in that civil action. By the way, I will tell occasional war stories. Um, don't be shocked and say, oh, my God, I can't believe he's giving away um, that detailed information about a case. I, I always change up the facts enough so that uh, my simple rule is I don't want even the client to be able to recognize that I'm talking about their case. So I might talk about a case being in San Diego when it's really in Riverside or something like that. But uh, the, every example I give you is completely accurate. I just change the identities to protect the innocent. So even if you only do defense work, you need to be able to identify the slaps. Uh, I get clients that come in, uh, I'm not exactly sure why, but I get a lot of cases where I take over for other attorneys 
who the clients are dissatisfied with. And because of that, I see so many occasions where when I come in on the defense side, sometimes on the eve of trial, that I see the case as a, as a clear slap, but the slap motion was never pursued. So these will be cases where it's been going on for a year when it can, could have been disposed of in the first 60 days uh, if the defense attorney had been able to spot the slap issue. All that time was spent on a case that could have been disposed of. As, as a war story of that, I took over a case about six weeks before trial, sat down, took a hard look at the complaint, and I realized that the entire complaint was based on protected speech. I could have sought leave to file an, a late anti-slap motion, but that comes with its own set of problems. There's case law that says the whole point of an anti-slap motion is to get rid of the case early. So if you wait until the eve of trial to bring your anti-slap motion, that kind of defeats the whole purpose. So if I brought brought a motion seeking leave to bring an anti-slap motion, that could have been denied. So instead, I scheduled a hearing for motion for judgment on the pleadings. This was so close to trial that the first hearing date for my motion was the second day of trial. <laughs> but I went ahead and said it. Uh, opposing counsel jumped up and down, couldn't believe I was setting a, a motion for judgment on the pleadings on the second day of trial. Uh, but there happened to be an intervening motion for settlement conference, or excuse me, mandatory settlement conference set. So I went ahead and at that mandatory settlement conference brought it to the court's attention that I had a motion for judgment on the pleadings set for the second day of the trial. Uh, the judge was intrigued, so he went ahead and continued the trial in order to hear the uh, motion for judgment on the pleadings. He granted the motion and threw the case out. Again, it wasn't an anti-slap motion, but it was based on the same protected speech theory. Uh, if if the prior counsel had brought that motion, the client could have recovered attorney's fees. Uh, as it was, I just used the, the same law to get my client out uh, without having to go through trial. The uh, As you can imagine, opposing counsel was apoplectic, screaming that it wasn't proper to schedule a motion for the second day of trial. Uh, he took it up on appeal and, and lost. So that's the first reason for this podcast, to provide an easy way for litigators to get up to speed and stay current on slap law. Here's the slogan I came up with. I read the cases so you don't have to. Pretty good, don't you think? Anyway, give me 15 or 20 minutes a week while you're commuting or working out or something, and, and you'll be doing a real service for your clients. The second reason is just to reach a different demographic. I created California Slap Law about three years ago. It's actually quite amazing. I mean, when you think about it, I just can't imagine there's a whole lot of people out in the world wanting to learn more about California Slap Law unless they're attorneys or something comes up in their lives. And as you can expect, most of the non-attorneys who go to my site are self-represented parties who have run, a, run afoul of the statute and are trying to find a way out. So I get a lot of those kind of people showing up. And I, I just feel like in this day of Facebook and uh, YouTube, uh, having a different medium out there where people can uh, find this information would be would be useful. Hey, you found me, so it worked at least once, right? So let's set the stage with a very brief history lesson about California's slap law. When I started my practice, uh, the slap law didn't even exist yet. It was actually quite the brilliant idea. Uh, the California legislature really got something right. Uh, I'm quite impressed. When you think about it, uh, it's a very interesting law they came up with. There's a, there's a lot of ways they could have gone. They could have said, well, there's these uh, people are bringing actions to keep people from uh, being free to criticize. So 
let's have some sort of a sanction procedure or let's have some sort of an expedited summary judgment procedure. Or, there's lots of ways they could have gone, but this this procedure they came up with where they, they took an existing cause of action, a, a motion to strike, turned it into a quote-unquote special motion to strike with some special rules, uh, but still created this expedited process by which you could get rid of a, a, a case that's really just designed to censor someone. It was really, it was really quite brilliant. Um, I get calls uh, probably a couple of times a week. They go something like this. What can we do to get rid of this horrible slap law? And in every case, when I get that kind of a call, it's because somebody has tried to file the very case that the law is designed to uh, get rid of. So uh, I find that pretty humorous. Back in the day, though, and this is why this the statute was so important, is lawsuits were routinely used to silence free speech. Just think about it. You're a, you're a politician and somebody's being very critical of you. You're uh, you have a business and somebody's talking bad about you. Whatever the scenario, um, you file an action against them, and it really didn't matter whether the action had merit or not. Point was, you were going to dip into that person's checkbook and make them spend money just trying to fight this action. You can imagine, unless it was a, a very strongly held beliefs or somebody with some resources, the easiest w- way to respond to a defamation action is just to capitulate and take down uh, whatever it is you posted or Actually, this this went into effect before the Internet. But whatever you were doing before that was objected to by the plaintiff, whatever it was you were doing, just undo it. Just stop doing whatever it is you're doing. Stop criticizing. Stop publishing. Whatever it is you're doing. And that was the best way to make the lawsuit go away. And so plaintiffs were very often rewarded for this kind of conduct. So in 1992, California was the first state to come up with uh, this method, dispose of those sorts of actions, which are referred to as SLAPs. As you probably know, SLAP stands for Strategic Litigation Against Public Participation. Strategic Litigation Against Public Participation. Uh, it's codified at California Code of Civil Procedure Section 425.16. Uh, California was the first and uh, still has the most sweeping uh, anti-SLAP legislation. Since then, about 27 other states have passed similar legislation, although some of them are much more uh, watered down than California's. Some of them almost exactly follow California's. In fact, when you look at the appellate decisions in those states, they very often refer to California's uh, laws because uh, they're modeled on them. So here is California's law in a nutshell. California's anti-slap statute defines certain types of speech and certain activities as falling under the statute. If a plaintiff files an action, and it has to be an action, some people want to bring anti-slap motions over Uh, letters and that sort of thing. No, it has to be an action, and it doesn't apply to arbitration either. So if a plaintiff files an action, the defendant can bring a special motion to strike. That's the anti-slap motion. The defendant then has the burden to show that the complaint or individual causes of action within the complaint fall under the slap law. But that's not the end of it. If the defendant meets his burden, then the plaintiff can defeat the motion by showing that he is more likely than not to succeed in his action. If the plaintiff can meet that burden, then the motion is denied and the action proceeds. If not, the complaint or individual claims are stricken. So what types of speech or conduct fall under the anti-slap statute? Here they are. And when I say statement, those statements can be written or oral. A statement made before a legislative proceeding. A statement made before an executive proceeding. A statement made before a judicial proceeding. That's a big one because that's the litigation privilege. Or a statement made before any other official proceeding authorized by law. Let me read that one again. 
a statement made before any other official proceeding authorized by law. That one's very broad and, and is the basis of, of much dispute. Now, now, to each of the items I just listed, also add anything done in connection with those proceedings. So it's not that you just stand up in front of a legislative proceeding and say something. Uh, it can also be something you did in connection with what the legislative proceeding was uh, convened for, that sort of thing. The best example of that is litigation. It's not that you have to do something directly related to the litigation. Well, it has to be related to the litigation. But for example, even before the litigation is filed, uh, if an attorney sends a demand letter, that that falls under uh, the protection of the anti-slap statute. So, as I said, anything said in court is obviously in relation to a judicial proceeding, uh, but so is anything done in connection with that. If a family law matter, the expert is asked to opine on something related to the dis- dissolution or, or, or divorce, the information set forth in that report would be protected. Any written or oral statement or writing made in a place open to the public or a public forum in connection with an issue of public interest. Let me say that one again. Any written or oral statement or writing made in a place open to the public or a public forum in connection with an issue of public interest. And finally, any other conduct in furtherance of the exercise of the constitutional right of petition or the constitutional right of free speech in connection with a public issue or an issue of public interest. As you can see, that last category is very broad. So there you have it. Everything you need to know about slap law. Thank you for coming. Drive safely. If only that were true. There have been, since the law was passed in 1992, there are over 2,000 reported appeal decisions uh, while the courts have tried to decide just what those seemingly simple concepts mean. For example, just what is an issue of public interest? What is any other conduct in furtherance of the exercise of a constitutional right? What is a place open to the public? And then there are all the procedural issues that came up. What if a plaintiff amends the complaint after the motion is filed? Filing the motion stays discovery, but when should leave be granted? If the plaintiff dismisses the action while the motion is pending, can the court still consider the motion? Is the defendant still entitled to attorney's fees if the case is dismissed? All of those issues had to be addressed. Many of those issues have been addressed, but as you can well imagine... It's always in a state of flux. What the law is today is not necessarily what the law will be tomorrow. In fact, when I first started doing this, it was often a real challenge to convince the court that an issue was an issue of public interest. Is a review on Amazon about a toaster a matter of public interest? Well, no. If it's being if if the review on Amazon is talking about the consistency of the toasting, that's probably not a matter of public interest. But what if the review brings up that the toaster is a fire hazard? Well, that might be a matter of public interest. That's the kind of nuances that the, the case law had to decide. Now, seemingly everything is a matter of public interest. Anything brought before the court now, the court says, oh, yeah, that's a matter of public interest. Now, this is my cynical side speaking, but think about it. The typical courtroom, the court, the typical judge has about 600 cases in their inventory. If we assume uh, an average of a week for a trial, I don't know if that's even realistic, but let's let's say a week, that means that judge can crank out 50 trials uh, a year, uh, assuming a two-week vacation. So they've got to get rid of 550 cases somehow. 
uh, you present them with an anti-slap motion that has some merit, they're, they're going to find that there's a, a matter of public interest in there somewhere. Uh, going back in history again, I think I was probably the first attorney to argue that Yelp was a public forum. Uh, a judge out in the Inland Empire rejected that argument out of hand. That one was kind of funny. Now every website is considered a public forum. It's not even an issue anymore. Well, maybe a little bit of an issue depending on the on the website. But it was a bold new concept when I claimed that Yelp was a public forum, uh, and now that's routinely found. That case was very frustrating. It was uh, it was kind of an interesting case. My client had actually posted a negative review about an attorney. Uh, the review was completely honest. And in no way was it defamatory, but the attorney sued my client to get my client to take down the review. A quintessential slap, basically using a lawsuit to get my client to stop his criticism. Uh, so I brought my beautiful anti-slap motion and, and took it out there to the judge. And, and the judge looked at me and said, Mr. Morris, the only proper forum for criticism of an attorney is the state bar. Man, we've gone a long way since then. I think it's pretty clear that California's slap law has grown far beyond what anyone had anticipated. And for the most part, that's actually a very good thing. It, it provides a, a quick and relatively inexpensive way to get rid of slap actions. I'll give you an example of one I had that just shows how perfect uh, the anti-slap statute is. It was actually a case where my client went to a city council meeting, walked up to the lectern, and uh, criticized one of the city council members. The city council member didn't like what was said, so believe it or not, you would think a city council member would certainly know that anything said at a city council meeting is privileged. Didn't stop her. She went ahead and filed an action for defamation against my client. So I was able to go in and, and very quickly bring a motion that got rid of that. This one was, you can't make this stuff up. In defense of the attorney, uh, the city council member had filed the complaint improper. So she files this complaint. Client hires me to fight the complaint. I bring the anti-slap motion. At that point, she went in search of an attorney. So I can just imagine the meeting. He's looking at this going, are you kidding? You actually sued somebody for defamation for something they said at a city council meeting. Uh, but the attorney looked at it, and the, here's the only theory he could come up with to fight my anti-slap motion. He looked at um, when you go into the city council meeting in this particular city, you're handed a pamphlet, and the pamphlet give some guidance about how to conduct yourself at a city council meeting. And one of the things was in this pamphlet was that you uh, must act in a civil nature. You must not be rude to the city council. So his whole defense of the anti-slap motion was my client was not polite to the city council member and therefore it was illegal speech because it didn't follow the procedures of the city. And since illegal speech isn't protected, therefore, uh, this didn't fall under the anti-slap statute. Uh, you, like I said, you, you just can't make this stuff up. Obviously, the judge wasn't impressed. So as you can hear, I'm a real proponent of the anti-slap statute, but California slap law does have a dark side. Uh, there was a case called Olson versus Harbison. In that case, the court said, quote, Anti-slap procedures enacted to curb abusive litigation are also prone to abuse, close quote. In other words, to some extent, we have swapped one form of abuse for another. So there's two primary forms of abuse that I see. Probably the number one form is it's used for delay. As you're probably aware, when you bring an anti-slap motion, if you lose, uh, you can bring an, an immediate appeal. If you win, the other side can bring an immediate appeal. Now, if you bring an anti-slap motion and win... It makes sense to me that the other side can bring a 
appeal because basically the case is over, or at least, at the very least, some of the causes of action have been stricken. So it makes sense at that point to let uh, the party, the plaintiff, bring an appeal because their their action is either over or, or greatly injured. Uh, but it makes no sense at all that if you bring a anti-slap motion and you lose, that also gives you an automatic right of appeal because that's just too much of a, a invitation for abuse uh, by defendants. Uh, you bring an action, they dream up some basis for an anti-slap motion knowing it's going to fail. They bring their anti-slap motion. Uh, there's no skin off their teeth because unless it's completely frivolous, uh, they're not on the hook for attorney's fees if you bring an anti-slap motion and lose. So they bring the motion, they lose, they bring the appeal, and they delay the action six to eight months or however long it takes to do the appeal. So a lot of judges are very down on that and want that changed. They want it to just be when the plaintiff loses the anti-slap motion, uh, the plaintiff can then bring an appeal, not the defendant. I'll give you an example of, of the, one of the worst cases of this I've ever seen. I brought a defamation action against a doctor, ended up resulting in a $1.6 million judgment against the doctor. Thank you very much. But he wanted to delay the action as much as possible, and so he kept coming up with ways to do so. It was very interesting because he happens to be a doctor, and he brought in a parade of six sick, excuse me, attorneys, a parade of sick attorneys. I don't know whether they were patients or or how he would find all these uh, sick attorneys, but uh, we would get we would get so close to trial, and then the attorney would go to court and say, "I need a continuance because I'm sick." And next attorney would come on board, "I need a continuance because I'm sick." Then there was an attorney. We got to within about two months of the trial date, the continued trial date. This attorney came in, and and this was his story. He, uh, I don't want to, I don't want to make light of the fact that he was suffering from some sort of a medical condition. But here's what he said to the court: He, he came to court about two months before trial, and he said, "Well, I'm brand new on the case. Uh, I need a six month continuance." This judge had been very generous in granting continuances to the point I was going crazy. But he'd finally had enough. So he said, no, I'm not, I'm not going to give you a continuance. There's been a parade of attorneys. It's time we move forward on this case. You've got two months. Two months should certainly be enough to get ready for this trial. So about six weeks later, the attorney brought an ex-party application asking for a continuance. And here was, here was his story. He said, uh, I take medicine for this, this medical condition I have, but the medicine makes me tired. So... Because I can't take the medicine and get ready for trial, I had to go off the medicine to get ready for trial. But now that I've been off the medicine, my medical condition is greatly aggravated. So I need a continuance now so I can go back on the medicine and cure or you know diminish my my condition so that then I can handle the trial. Uh, so again, I need six months. The, <laughs> the judge wouldn't go for that and basically said, well, I was the one making the argument, but I said, well, how's that going to work? Because he's saying he can't get ready for trial taking this medicine. So he went off the medicine, but now he's saying he's going to go back on the medicine to get well enough to do the trial. But that means he'll be too tired to get ready for trial. So the the way the judge set it up is he gave him a month to uh, get ready for trial. And so he, he did actually get a little continuance out of it, uh, but he had to produce the documents um, that were required under Local Rule 317 at a certain time. Uh, the attorney missed the deadline, and a new 
attorney showed up saying, yes, he was far too sick or far too tired, whatever his story was that time, to get ready. So uh, I'm here now and I need a continuance, but the, but the judge didn't grant it. That's that's the kind of, oh, so I, I missed the punchline. So the new attorney comes in and he, the first thing he does is he brings, and now remember, this this case is probably two years old at this point. He brings a motion for leave to file a late anti-slap motion. And the judge said, as I said earlier, no, that's not really the purpose of an anti-slap motion. Uh, you've waited too long. Uh, I'm denying your motion for an anti-slap motion. And so uh, I'm denying your motion for leave to file a late anti-slap motion. So the opposing counsel then filed an appeal saying that the denial of the motion for leave to file a late anti-slap motion was in essence a denial of an anti-slap motion and therefore fell under the automatic right of appeal. So again, the case got delayed. I had to run into the Court of Appeal, uh, bring a motion to get this dismissed. Uh, it was heard pretty quickly, so I think he he only bought about 30 days with this tactic, but uh, it just shows you the abuse that can go on using the anti-slap statute for uh, delay. So that's the first form of abuse is, is the delay that people are using the anti-slap motion for. The second one is uh, the attorney's fees. It, it's I understand the scheme. I agree with the scheme. And it would be a fine scheme if we didn't have attorneys abusing it. The scheme is that if somebody files a slap and you bring an anti-slap motion and you succeed in your anti-slap motion, you get to recover your attorney's fees. I bring a lot of anti-slap motions, so I love that provision that we get our attorney's fees. But you have too many attorneys now that just view it as a, as a, an unlocked ATM machine uh, that they can go up and submit these ridiculous fee applications. I'm brought in very often as, a, as an expert witness to fight these fee applications. I'm often brought in um, to oppose uh, fee applications. Uh, so I see a lot of fee applications. And I, I cannot tell you how many times I've seen fee applications that soaking wet should have been about $12,000. These were just the, the most basic form of anti-slap motion, so there's just nothing to justify it. You know, Would you submit a $50,000 fee application uh, for a motion to compel? I would hope that most attorneys wouldn't, but they do it routinely uh, with anti-slap motions. In fact, I see routinely fee applications of $100,000 or more. And the problem is there's no consequence. Uh, in, in every case where I've been brought in to fight a fee application, I've retained, uh, excuse me, I've obtained a reduction. Every time I've been brought in, I've got some money knocked off the fee application. Um, this is not a promise of results. Your mileage may differ, but uh, I've always been successful. But there's no consequence to the other side for, for submitting these huge fee applications. Uh, there's actually case law that says if if the other side of if the if the prevailing party which would be the defendant if the defendant submits a fee application that that is overreaching um the court can deny the fee application altogether it kind of goes back to the typical legal maxim uh, if somebody is untruthful in one part of their testimony you can disbelieve them in all of their testimony it's the same way with these fee applications the courts have said well if, if we know they submitted a bogus fee application if they padded the bill or, or sought things they're not entitled to recover then why should we believe them at all so there's there's ample case law that says if they submit a bogus fee application or they overreach in their fee application, you can deny it altogether. So 
I had this uh, one case where I was brought in as an expert to challenge the, actually I was retained this time to actually represent the party on the opposition to the fee application. So I draft my motion, I, I go through and I do what's called an audit. I go through and I look at every line item. I find all the waste in there. I find all the things you're, you're only entitled to seek recovery for time spent on the anti-slap motion and the uh, time spent on the fee application. But inevitably they have everything in there. Everything they've ever done on that case will be in, in the fee application. So I went in and did did this audit and did my motion and and went up to Los Angeles and argued this and I got the the fees reduced by $40,000 $40,000 so the judge that listened to it was was very thoughtful and she basically reduced it every penny that I asked for um, so I didn't really have much beef with the fact that she uh, had done her job had reviewed the papers had had reduced the fee application and taken out all the the nonsense but after she gave her tentative ruling, I said, Your Honor, I really appreciate that you've taken the time to go through my opposition and uh, and cut out all of this excess. I just want to remind the court that you're entitled to deny them all of their fees if you find that they were overreaching, if they sought a fees they weren't entitled to. And she says, overreaching? I, I didn't see any overreaching. You just took $40,000 off their fee application and you don't find that to be overreaching. So that's my biggest criticism is that there's there's just no consequence when they submit these ridiculous fee bills. So the culture out there among attorneys who don't have a lot of scruples, let's say, is why not submit a, a huge fee application? The, the judge might rubber stamp it. And if they don't, what's the worst case scenario? We'll, we'll get what we were supposed to get anyway. So it's a bad situation. So now some might argue, well, so what? I mean, if they filed a slap and they get hit with a big fee, well, good on it, because they shouldn't have filed the slap to begin with. Here's the problem with that as I see it. There are what I call innocent slaps. As I said, I get brought in to fight slaps and attorney fee applications, so I get to see a lot of cases where other attorneys have gone wrong. And the most common mistake is they file the action expecting to use the discovery process to get the information they need, but they get caught in the discovery stay. Uh, I've seen cases where counsel had a witness to defamation, for example, but after the anti-slap motion is filed, the witness gets cold feet and won't provide a declaration or changes or testimony. So the poor plaintiff ends up with a judgment against him for attorney's fees, not, not because he filed a malicious slap, but because circumstances conspired against him and kept him from presenting sufficient evidence to overcome an anti-slap motion. It's not unlike the English rule versus the American rule debate when it comes to attorney fees. There's just no right answer. Under the English rule, the loser pays, and that discourages frivolous actions, but it also means that legitimate actions can't be filed simply because the plaintiff would not be able to pay the attorney's fees to the other side if he lost. Whereas the American rule, that lets the little guy have his day in court, even if it's against a big company, but that also means that there will be frivolous actions filed. So there's pros and cons to both. So, yes, the slap law provides a great way to get rid of cases that are filed to silence critical speech or the right of redress, but a couple of times a day I have to tell prospective clients that, in my opinion, they, they can't afford to risk pursuing the action since the risk of grossly inflated attorney's fees is just too great uh, given the evidence that they have. So some would look at that and say, well, okay, so the system's working. It's keeping those people from filing those actions, but who's to say those aren't legitimate actions? So that'll do it for today. I hope I've demonstrated why it is so important for litigators to have a firm understanding of slap law. 
Some slaps are very apparent, but some can be very stealthy. So next time I'll provide you with a step-by-step checklist for analyzing cases to see if you've been served with a slap or perhaps more importantly, to make sure that you're not about to file one. If you already have a good understanding of slaps and just need information about the most recent cases, that's cool too. Just give me a little time to lay the foundation and then I'll move on to case law and strategies. Thanks for listening. Have a great week and try not to slap anyone.